Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are such a Savior. That you have brought about salvation through the work of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Father, that we who have rebelled against you, who have spit in your face, who have sinned over and over again, find in Christ full forgiveness, so rich and so free. Father, hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, Lord, we ask that as we have spoken to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we have, as we have sung and made melody in our hearts towards you, Father. Lord, as we have communed with you in prayer, as we have worshipped you with the giving of our tithes and offerings, Lord, now we come to sit at your feet as you teach us from your word. Father, what we do now is to those who do not know you but foolishness, But for those who do know you, Father, it is the breath of life unto life. And Father, we come in full dependence upon your Holy Spirit. Lord, everything that proceeds from this point forward is completely dependent. Everything that has happened today has been completely dependent upon your Spirit. So, Father, send your Spirit into our hearts opening our minds to the truth of your word and changing us and conforming us more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, we thank you again for your word, the Spirit, and for Christ. Work in our midst. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. You take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, and we're going to be Looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning, um, I am doubtful that we're going to get through all three verses this morning, and there's a lot in here. Uh, but again, as we, uh, as we did last week, we spent some time establishing the authority of Second Peter. We looked at uh, issues regarding its canonicity, and then we read the entire book uh, as an opportunity for us to practice what Paul calls us to do, to be involved in the public reading of Scripture And so what we sort of concluded at the end of our time last week was that the major theme of 2 Peter is that there is power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. Power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. And so today, we're going to specifically be looking at what it means to know Christ, knowing Christ, and the significance that that plays here in these first few verses. So look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 3. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You know, there's an age-old saying, I'm sure you've probably said it, you probably know it very well, and that is, it's all in who you know, right? You know, we look at that in, in career moves, and that's why there's been such a, a movement today among business professionals to talk about networking and getting to know different people. You know, who you know can help careers, it can garner opportunities for you, it can allow you to enjoy certain privileges. It's all in who you know. I remember one time I was waiting in this really long line and somebody who I knew who was sort of organizing everything, they saw me in this long line and I was patiently waiting there and they said, oh, you don't need to wait in that line. Come with me. And I got to skip everybody in front of me. I mean, it was, it was a sort of a, a nice feeling. And so Peter is in, in one very real sense telling us that our hope in this life is based upon who we know. And that knowledge is not to be found in trying to get um, favor in careers or trying to build up special privileges, but rather the knowledge that we must have for life is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must know Him. Now, unfortunately, the reality that I think we often fall into is that we neglect to connect or to see how the knowledge of Christ is essential for our everyday lives. We will get it to some degree that, yes, I need to know Jesus so that I can have a, a spiritual, uh, healthy life. I need to know Jesus so that I can, I can you know, go to heaven and different things like that. We'll, we'll make those type of connections. But then when it comes to what we do at our work, how we interact with our families, how we spend time with our friends, we sort of put that knowledge of Christ on the back burner. And what Peter is telling us, in fact, in verse 3, this power that comes, the knowledge of Him, it pertains to life and godliness. That every aspect of our life needs to be connected to our knowledge of Christ. And so what Peter is calling us to do in this second epistle is to pursue the knowledge of Christ. And so there are a couple of things I'd like us to consider this morning and likely next week about how we go about pursuing the knowledge of Christ. And the first is that the knowledge of Christ is dependent on faith. The knowledge of Christ is dependent upon faith. Again, notice who Peter is writing to. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have Obtained what? Faith. A faith of equal standing with ours. What is remarkable here to see in these opening verses, these opening words that Peter is using here, is he speaks of the faith that his readers share with him as an apostle. It is somewhat striking to hear the apostle Peter the one who preached at Pentecost, the one who walked on water, the one who was instrumental in the founding of the church in the books of Acts, it is remarkable to hear him comparing the faith of his readers with his own and saying, you have a faith of equal standing with ours. 
So what is involved in that faith? Well, if we look back in verse 1 to where Peter describes himself, we recognize, first of all, that this faith places us as slaves of Christ. Notice what he says again. Simeon Peter, a servant, the Greek word used there is the Greek word doulos, which means slave, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's important to note about the idea of him using this term doulos is it's not just simply stating that he serves Christ, although that is certainly the case here. But rather, doulos also implied the idea of ownership. Peter no longer belonged to himself. He no longer lived for himself. But everything about him was now caught up in his obedience to the Lord. In fact, really, in some ways, the knowledge of Christ cannot bring us anywhere but recognizing we are slaves to Christ. We are servants of Him. This is the first reality of faith. When we trust in Christ, when we turn to Him by God's grace, we are completely relinquishing control of our lives and we are giving it to Him. See this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We cannot simply come and obtain a faith of equal standing with that of the apostles if we say we believe, but we're not committed to Christ. The two go hand in hand. In fact, it is the exact opposite of faith to trust in, to say, well, yes, I trust in Jesus, but I'm going to trust in myself for everything else. That's not trusting. That's not faith. As Jude says in Jude 4, he speaks about how there are certain people who had crept in unannounced, who long ago were designated for this designation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God and deny our What's that next word? Our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so when when Peter calls us to have a faith of equal standing, it begins with recognizing that that faith places us into a position of servanthood, of slavery to Christ Himself. There is only one Master in the life of the Christian And that is Jesus Christ. Now, is that true of your life? Which master do you serve? There are many competing masters out there in the world today. There is the master of of enjoyment and pleasure and ease of life. There is the master of finances and of careers and, and even good things that God has given us like family and even friends. They can become masters of our life and they, we see what we are serving when they are in conflict. When your job tells you to do something that you know goes against what Christ has decreed that you do, whom will you serve? When your friends 
pull you away and, and take you towards something that would go against what Christ has decreed. Who will you serve? The reality and the message of what is being brought here when we understand that we are slaves of Christ is that same message that Joshua gave to Israel as they were entering the promised land. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And so if we are to understand that this faith that we have places us on equal standing with Simon Peter, then we have to recognize it makes us servants and slaves to Jesus Christ. That is how we have this faith of equal standing. But also look at how else Peter um, identifies himself. He is Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, as we discussed last week, this is necessary to establish the authority of this book. We don't just listen to anybody that any, anything that anybody writes. There are lots of good books out there written today, but they do not bear the same authority as the Word of God because God chose to speak through the apostles, through the prophets. And then he chose to take evangelists and pastor teachers to take what was written by the apostles and prophets and proclaim it to the world. And so Peter, again, standing in the line of the Old Testament prophets, establishes the authority that he has in this book. And so when he does that, this faith that is of equal standing with his is going to bring us to recognize, as we go through this letter, as we read any passage of Scripture, that our, our commitment and our service to Christ demands that we obey what is written. That the Word of God has authority over your life. God has the right to tell you what to do. God has the right to tell you what not to do. And God has the right to tell you the attitude you should have as you do and do not do those things that He commands and forbids. He has the absolute right. If we are slaves of Jesus Christ, then Peter's letter here and all throughout the New Testament, they are the words of our Master to us. It is His instructions for how we are to act as slaves of Christ. So again, having, having identified Himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, He writes to those who have obtained, those who are possessing a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I think it's amazing to first of all note, what is he saying here? It is a remarkable statement. What does it mean to have a faith of equal standing with the apostles? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize that faith is faith regardless of who possesses it. The faith that we possess today is the same faith that Abraham and Noah and Moses and Isaiah and Paul and Peter held throughout their lives. It is the same faith. And it is not the possessor or the professor of faith that makes them unique or stand out. Rather, it is the object of that faith. I think one thing that we oftentimes get 
sort of mixed up in is our understanding of heroes of the faith. You know, we look at, we look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith. And you see these figures from the Old Testament and how they all did these things all by faith. And, and the reason why the writer of Hebrews is putting that there is not to sort of create this, this you know, um, hall of fame of Christians, of believers, but rather to encourage us that the very same things they did, we can do because we have the same faith. That God can accomplish great things through those who have this same faith. I mean, think about for a second the apostles themselves. They weren't the world's best people to start a religion, if you think about it. They were not philosophers. They hadn't accomplished great things or invented life-altering products. They had not amassed great wealth, and they were not brokers of political power. They were fishermen, common folk, And even Paul, who is the one exception to this, who did possess some philosophical, religious, and political credentials, you know what he says in Philippians 2 about those things? He counts them as dung. They're useless to him. He views them as hindrances rather than advantages. And these men lit the world on fire. Why? It wasn't because of them. It was because of who they believed in. It was their faith. That was what they held in common. This like precious faith as the King James translates 2 Peter chapter 1. So faith is faith. It's not about the possessor or the person who holds it. It is the object of that faith. Secondly, faith is a gift. It's interesting how Peter words this here, and it's hard to see in our English translations. He says, um, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. That word obtained is a word that in the original language implies that the thing that was obtained by lot. And what I mean by that is, so if you remember, Jonah's on the ship, all right, big, big storm coming, and they're all like, well, how do, how do we determine whose fault this is? And what do they do? They cast lots. And it was a common practice in the ancient world to cast lots. And the person who drew, literally drew the short straw was the one who had been uh, confirmed with those things. And, of course, Jonah gets thrown over into the, into the boat. There's other instances of lots being cast. Now, it's interesting that that's what we find in the, in the Scriptures. We don't find gambling in the Scriptures. We don't find points of chance because, because the recognition of the casting of lots was that who sovereignly guided who got what lot? God did. And so it was a way, a, a practical way of discerning God's sovereign will for things. So why would Peter use that term here? Like you obtained faith by lot. Because he's making the point that in the same way that God is sovereign over the person who receives the lot, so God is sovereign over the gift of faith that he gives to his people. Now, this can cause all sorts of consternation and we can, we can have our minds running all sorts of different places. What's the main point for us that Peter's trying to get across here? 
Listen, you are not a believer in Christ because you were somehow clever enough. You are not a believer in Christ because you came to that knowledge on your own. You're not a believer in Christ because you have some sort of intellectual prowess or spiritual, uh, um, a, a spiritual wisdom and insight in and of yourselves. You know why you believe? Because Jesus has given you the gift of faith. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. It's not a result of works, lest any man, or so that no one should boast. And then we often keep 2, 8, and 9 sort of separated, but verse 10 comes very hard on that. For we are his what? Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. And so, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So when Peter is telling us that the knowledge of Christ provides everything we need for life and godliness, that verse 10 is what he's talking about. How do we become the workmanship that we are created to be in Christ? How do we perform good works? How do we walk in them? It begins with faith. But then it results in change. And that's part of that recognition that we are servants of Christ. You cannot claim to be a believer in Christ and then outwardly and inwardly oppose Him in the way you live, in the choices you make, in the works that you produce, in the way that you walk. That's nonsensical. And so faith is a gift that transforms us. This obtaining of this faith is a gift that transforms us. Particularly when he makes the statement of equal standing. Think about how Peter's faith transformed him. I mean, and if, here's the thing about Peter. We see changes throughout, and we also see him regressing at times. Peter's known to put his foot in his mouth. Peter's the one who denied Christ three times. But yet we also see in Peter him professing that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the one who only has the words of life, and they have nowhere else to go. Peter says these things. This brash, curt, rough fisherman from Galilee is transformed now so that he's now writing the second letter to the churches in Asia Minor to encourage them in the Lord. What a transformation. And so it is with us that if we believe, we will have this transformation. But what is it that we believe? Or more particularly, this equal standing. What is, what is Peter saying about this equal standing that we have? Where do we stand in equality with Peter? Again, this shared faith that we have, this, this faith that we share with Peter, 
does something. It provides equal standing in Christ. One of the wonderful things we see about the faith that Peter here exhibits is it is a faith that is held by all true believers, that it is something that we all hold in common. As Titus, or as Paul writes to Titus, he speaks of him as his child in a what? Common faith. And that common faith then brings, as we see Peter saying in verse 2, grace and peace from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we stand in the strain, we stand in the flow of history that goes all the way back to Adam and will continue all the way until Jesus Christ comes and redeems His people forever. We all share and have one thing in common. Faith. A faith that brings justification. Yes, we have a shared faith with Peter, but then we see, secondly, it is a justifying faith. This equal standing that we have with Peter, what does Peter have in mind? He has in mind our standing before God himself. That faith of equal standing with ours is given by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The standing that we have is acceptance before the Father through faith in Christ. Because we, by faith in Christ, possess the righteousness of God in Him. This is the very core of the gospel. What's the problem that this world has today? It's not, ultimately, it's not the political systems that we have. The ultimate problem of our world today is not the environment that people grow up in or the background that they've had. The ultimate problem with our world today is not that there are men who are waging war against other men. These are symptoms of a much deeper problem. And that problem is that we all fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of that righteousness, which is the very glory of God. So how can we stand before a perfect, righteous God? There is only one way. Faith in Jesus Christ. It is through faith that we no longer miss the mark are fall short of God's glory. We are justified. Now that's a fancy theological term which essentially means to be declared righteous. God looks at us and He no longer sees the sin and the falling short. He sees Jesus. He sees His righteousness which is counted to our account. This is the righteousness of God that brings salvation. In fact, if we look at the beginning of the book of Romans, that's the very thing Paul points to. He says in Romans 1, 16-17, a book on the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in in the gospel, what is the key thing that the gospel provides? The righteousness of God is what? Revealed. It's revealed from what? Faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous, the justified one shall live by what? This is the key to the gospel, and it's something that Peter is even going to reference later on. In 2 Peter 3, 15-16, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all those letters when he speaks of them in these matters. So what Peter is pointing to is that Paul's focus on the righteousness of God is the very thing that he's focusing on here at the outset. And then, again, one of my favorite verses in the Scripture, Peter recognizes that there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. So if Peter had a problem with it, I don't think any of us are going to get it all right. Of course, he speaks then of those who are ignorant and unstable, twist them to their own destruction as they do the other what? Scriptures. So this righteousness of God that provides equal standing with ours is found fully and completely by faith. And then here's the key. In our Lord and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to note that this is the object of our faith. The standing that we have that is equal with Peter and all the apostles and every believer throughout all all history, that standing is brought about by believing not in anyone else but in Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. This is what we call the exclusive call of the gospel. And it is not a it is a it is a doctrine that is under ill repute in our pluralistic and modernistic society, but it is all over the scriptures that Jesus is the only way. Who is this Jesus that we are trusting in? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to note that Peter calls Jesus something that I don't think we often run to this passage to prove. He is what? Our God. The deity of Christ becomes paramount in what Peter is presenting here in 2 Peter. He is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is um, clearly, clearly seen in the way that this is constructed in the original languages. And in particular, the fact that Peter adds the the adjective of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has pointed to one person who is all of these things. You understand that God must, or Christ must be God for us to possess God's righteousness. It is only through trusting in Jesus Christ that we are able to find a righteousness that equals God's righteousness because Christ is indeed God. 
That is why there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because there is no other man who has walked this earth who is also fully and completely God. That's why Jesus is it. There's been no one else who meets those qualifications. And if it is the righteousness of God that we must have for salvation, then we can only find it in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is essential that Christ be God. That Jesus of Nazareth be the Christ who is God. See, we cannot simply have a nebulous faith. If you just say, I'm a believer, whatever that means, that's, that's nothing. Just having that type of faith does not place you on an equal standing with the apostles, with Peter. Having some sort of nebulous idea that you believe in God, or having some sort of, some sort of nebulous idea that, that you're just sort of trusting some force out there. That, that does not bring faith. That is no different than really atheism because you're not believing in the true God. It is not enough simply to be a deist, to believe in God. Our faith must be in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God. Because it is only in Him that we find the one who was made to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we in Him might become what? The righteousness of God. That in Him we may have and possess that equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So what is the commonality of our faith that we share with Peter? This faith of equal standing with his. It is faith in Christ bringing righteous, a righteous standing before God. It is, as has been echoed throughout the eons of history since 1517, justification by faith. Now, Peter is talking about Knowing Christ. Why am I spending so much time talking about faith? Because you cannot know Christ apart from faith. You cannot. Sure, you can know things about Him. There are, there are Greek experts and, and people that I've read that have no idea who Jesus is, yet they study Him fervently. It's not enough just to know about Christ. You know, I know facts about Abraham Lincoln. He wore top hats and lived a long time ago. I know facts about, probably know more facts about this guy than Abraham Lincoln, about this guy named Christopher, Christopher Latham Scholes. Let me tell you about Christopher Latham Scholes. He invented the typewriter. Yeah. And in fact, the keyboard that exists today on your phones and exists today on your computers, he invented that keyboard. Why did he arrange the letters that way? Nobody knows. He was, a, he was an ardent um, 
uh, an ardent advocate that women should be treated justly in the workplace. He, the typewriter was one of the ways he sought to give them a level of security in the workplace rather than being uh, um, abused and, and really taken advantage of and exploited by workers and those men over them. You know, he, he died pretty much penniless. Everybody from up until this point had been using, writing everything, and they're like, why do I, have, why do I want to learn how to do this? I just keep writing. And it, it really didn't catch on until about a generation after him. And thankfully, in the typewriter community, it continues to this day. I know a lot of the history about Christopher Latham Scholes. But do I know him? See, Peter is telling us again in verse 3 that it is through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence that we are having everything we need for life and godliness. That, that it comes through knowledge of Him. And that knowledge is only entered into through heartfelt faith in Christ alone. This is essential to knowing Jesus. So what does this faith entail? Two things. First, abandonment of your own righteousness. Remember the very thing that he says gives us equal standing? It is our equal standing by or in the righteousness of God. You cannot have faith in Christ while simultaneously believing in your righteousness. You can't. You must abandon the idea that you are a basically good person. Now listen, that, I know that's not very popular today. I mean, we all want to think we're basically good people. I understand that. I want to think I'm a good person. But do I want to think that I'm a good person and reject the knowledge of Christ or am I willing to lay down my opinion of myself and come seeking mercy from Him? The reality is your good does not outweigh your bad. The reality is, is that no matter how hard you try to keep the commandments, you will always fail. Maybe not externally, but I'll tell you internally, you're failing all the time. There will be no scale in heaven to weigh your goodness against your bad. God has already told you His opinion of your righteousness. What does God think of your righteousness? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Polluted garment is a euphemistic way of saying a menstruous cloth. That is the actual literal term. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you 
For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The fundamental problem with Israel in Isaiah 64 is that they looked to their own righteousness and God said it is a filthy, dirty, disgusting rag. We are the same today. Now, God doesn't point these things out to us to be cruel or mean to us, to have us have poor self-esteem because He does it to show us that there is hope in turning to Jesus Christ alone by faith. And so while we abandon our own self-righteousness, we then must turn in dependence on Christ's righteousness. There is no scale in heaven. There is one standard. Do we meet the glory of God? And left to our own devices, we will not. But in Christ, the glory is that we can stand before God and He will look at us and He will say, you've met the standard in your, my Son, Jesus Christ. What a glorious day that will be when our declaration of salvation in Christ and, and righteousness in Him that we have obtained by faith is now confirmed in our glorification. And so everyone in this room will one day stand before a holy and righteous judge. He is not going to judge based on the appearances. There's not going to be an opportunity for you to put on your Sunday best on that day. He is a holy and righteous judge. He sees to the heart. He judges perfectly. He provides perfect justice according to that righteous standard. And on that day, only the ones who have standing before Him in Christ will be accepted. Only those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with every believer by the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ will be accepted. Everyone else, He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But for those who know Christ, to those who know Christ, for to know Christ is to know the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's right hand. He has made Him what? Known. In John 14, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes through Him. If we had what? Known Him. We know the Father also. And so on that day, we will hear, not depart from me, but we will hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of the Lord. We need to seek what Paul seeks in Philippians chapter 3, that we would be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but possessing a righteousness that comes through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may what? Know Him. So when Peter tells us 
that the knowledge of Christ is everything, that knowing Christ is essential to have everything we need for life and godliness. How do we know Him? It is only by faith. It is only by obtaining that faith of equal standing with Peter's, with Paul's, with James, with Matthew, with Augustine and with Luther and with Calvin and with Zwingli, with Spurgeon, with believers to today. What is the thing that binds us together? We all stand before God, righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we are to know Him, we must come by faith. So as we journey through this letter that stakes everything on the knowledge of Christ, I would be remiss if I did not challenge you regarding your faith. Now is an opportunity to examine your own heart. Have you obtained this faith by God's grace that gives you standing in Christ's righteousness? Are you trusting in Christ alone and nothing else? This is the only way to know Him. There is no other way to gain the knowledge of Christ apart from faith in Him. The rest of this study, the rest of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings in 2 Peter is going to be fruitless if you do not know Christ by faith. If you're hearing this this morning and you have been up until this point depending on your righteousness, repent and turn from that righteousness and turn to Christ alone. Trust in Him. Place your dependence for standing before God fully and completely in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May today, if you do not have that testimony, may today be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, the truth we find in it. And Father, we ask today that you would work in our midst by your spirit. Thank you for this faith that provides equal standing with the apostles, with the prophets, with all those who have gone before in Christ. Father, I pray if there is someone here today who does not know you, today, Father, may you work in their hearts. May they receive the gift of faith and may they cry out to you for salvation. Father, we pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. We're going to observe the Lord's table this morning. I think it's apt that as we do this, we recognize the opportunity to give feet or actions to our faith. And so, as we do oftentimes with our, uh, our observance of the Lord's table, we take up an offering for our benevolence fund. So if we can have the ushers come, we'll receive the offering for the benevolence fund at this time. And while they're coming, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, Lord, we pray that you would bless this offering. Lord, bless it for the use that these funds can give to those in this congregation who have physical and financial needs, Father, and may we also seek to use it 
to help those outside of this congregation as we're able. Father, bless this and bless the gift and the giver. We